mind. What's on your mind? Information. She's full of it. Things to do, places to visit, and the stories behind the people in our community. That's a lot of information. Throw in a little news and pop culture. That's too much information. You have TMI with Teresa. What have I told you about over here? TMI with Teresa. We're all guilty of TMI. TMI. Well, good morning. Thank you for joining me on this Super Bowl Sunday edition of TMI with Teresa. Coming up in the show, we're going to talk about Country Cares for St. Jude Kids. This is a big, huge radiothon that's been going on for years, and our country stations here at Still City Media participate and help out February 11th and 12th, KFKF and Q104. They're going to be doing um, a lot to help out these kids and raise money for St. Jude. But first, we go to an event every year with our friends. Danny and Heather introduced us to Inclusion Connections and Possibilities, and they have a big gala every year. But of course, this year it has to be virtual because of COVID. But that doesn't mean that it's not going to be as much fun. And of course, that doesn't mean that they don't need your help because this is one of their biggest fundraisers. So I wanted to check in with Debbie Horn. Debbie, it's been about a year or so since I've talked to you. You were actually one of our first episodes of our Sunday morning show, TMI with Teresa. How have you been? been. Great, Teresa, and I, I appreciate the follow-up. It was fun to do your last one. I'm look, looking forward to talking to you about fashionability today. Well, I just want to make sure that everybody knows about your organization, especially because COVID is making things a little bit different, but you're still going to be able to have your amazing event and raise money. Um, let's just do a quick little recap for people who are not familiar, and let's talk about inclusion connections and possibilities and what you do. Sure. Inclusion Connections and Possibilities is an Olathe-based nonprofit, and we serve individuals with intellectual disabilities. So we have a variety of programs, and our, probably our most popular and meaningful program is Possibilities. And that is our job training program where we actually operate a job treat uh, business. We make um, tons of different pet-related products here, so we actually manufacture them here and have a bakery for the treats. And by just by operating that business, we provide job training for our students. Um, and then after they're trained, we go on to get them jobs out in the community. So the whole purpose is to get uh, paid jobs in the community. And every year you have this fashionability gala where um, your people in your program, they do a fashion show and it's just a really fun event and there's a dinner and we all get together in a banquet hall. And of course, because of COVID, that is not possible this year. So how exactly are you having your event then on February 13th? Right. Yes, it is. Uh, it's our biggest event of the year. It actually provides for almost 50% of our annual budget. So it's very important to us in many ways. But, you know, I think we've done a good job of putting this together virtually. We came up with the theme of Bright Lights Kansas City. So many of our families took their students around iconic places in Kansas City, Union Station, the World War One Museum, places like that, and did a did, uh, filmed the kids doing their model walk at these locations. So actually turned out great. And we put that together for our show. We have a little um, singing. I think they're singing This Is Me from The Greatest Showman. So we've got a performance in there. And then we've got some local celebrities, you know, talking about our event and introducing our live auctions and silent auction items that uh, and fund to need, of course, which are all uh, critical for raising 
raising funds the night of the event. So how can people tune in and be a part of this virtual show? Sure. Go to galakc.org and it'll give you all the information you need. The event is Saturday, February 13th at uh, 7 p.m. Tune in a little bit earlier just to get everything hooked up and ready to go. Um, We will have it after the event. We'll be able to access that event if you can't come on Saturday night. And also, if you're not able to come, you can still access all the bidding channels for silent auction, live auction, and fund a need. Um, They'll be open on Monday. So Monday and then even up until after the event, you'll be able to um, still donate and give through our um, gala website. So. I think it's great that you're, um, you know, you have to kind of think outside of the box and you have to keep moving forward and all the infos at galakc.org. And I love how you can register and then get text updates and things and make sure because, you know, you get busy on the weekends and you're not going to forget because you're going to get a reminder. Exactly. The technology is pretty amazing. It's it's a bit of a disappointment because I tell you, you cannot really replace seeing our kids on stage and performing. I mean, it is so amazing, but we, we did our best to convey that. And, and we hope as people watch that, they'll understand, of course, that it's different in person. And then, you know, maybe be so excited that they'll want to come next year to see everything in person and be a part of the, the live event. And we're, we're planning on that, of course, next year to have our live event back at the Embassy Suites here in Olathe. So it's the Fashionability Gala for 2021. It's Saturday, February 13th. And just go to galakc.org for all of the info and to register. Okay, great. Well, Debbie, thank you so much. And thank you for just what you do. It's such a great organization. And good luck with your fundraiser. Well, thank you, Teresa. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on today. And finally on the program, let's talk about St. Jude and their mission for kids and what it is that they do. No family will ever receive a bill. That's, I think, the biggest thing. Will never receive a bill for treatment, travel, housing, or food. At St. Jude, they believe that a family should worry only about helping their kid survive and get better. And that promise is made possible by people like you that donate and help out. And that's why our country stations here, KFKF and Q104, part of our Still City Media Radio Cluster, they have this big Country Cares Radiothon. I would like to point out too, though, because Danny Thomas, the founder of St. Jude, a lot of people believe that this is only a cancer hospital. And pediatric cancer is their largest initiative but they also do other things. They actually do research and treat other catastrophic childhood diseases as well. They were the first to find a cure for sickle cell anemia. They found a cure for bubble boy disease back in 2019, and they have one of the largest pediatric HIV AIDS departments. They're very proud of all of that. And so as you're listening this morning, just remember that you can become a partner in Hope by donating $19 a month and you'll get a brand new We Won't Stop shirt because they won't stop until no child dies of cancer. And you can get all the info by going to stjude.org slash radio slash KFKF. This is Jen, and she's going to share her daughter Avery's story. So Jen, tell me a little bit, first of all, about your family. Well, we are a family of five. Uh, my husband and I have been married for about 14 years, and we had, Avery was our first child, and then we had, let's see, Emmett's next, he's eight, Avery's 12, Emmett's eight, and then um, Quinn is five. So then tell me about Avery and why she needed to seek medical treatment. What was going on? Well, she actually, um, she was a 
again, our firstborn, and we were brand new parents. And she was, oh gosh, about 11 months old. And our daycare lady said to us one day, you know, she keeps falling over um, for no reason, like in, you know, just sitting there on the ground. And she was in that place where she was starting to walk a little bit, you know, toddle behind push toys, kind of do some cruising. But she would sit down on the ground and just randomly fall over. And after she had been doing that for a good couple of weeks, she finally said, you know, I really think you should take her in. So we took her to our pediatrician and we just anticipated maybe getting back like a inner ear infection that was maybe messing with her equilibrium, you know, kind of throwing her off balance. And that was maybe what was causing it. Unfortunately, that wasn't what the situation came up with. They actually measured her head. And in the two months since she had last been seen, her head had grown off the charts for, you know, kind of what they measure for babies of that age. And so luckily for us, our pediatrician happened to have a sister-in-law who was a neurologist. And so she stepped out of the room, made a quick phone call to her sister-in-law, who then said, get that kid in for an MRI ASAP. At this point, Um, are you panicking yet? Or are you just kind of staying calm until you have more answers? Nope, I wasn't panicking. I mean, we were first time parents. We didn't really know up from down. You know, it really took somebody else pushing us to go to the doctor to even take her in to realize that, you know, her falling over was not normal. So we were kind of the opposite end of the spectrum when it came to new parents. We really didn't think much of it. Of it and we really expected for them to just say, oh, she's got an ear infection. And, you know, that's kind of what it was. So we weren't panicking yet. The doctor did give us a couple of instances. We said, so what is this? What does this mean? And she said, well, you know, she could have some fluid in there, which, of course, if that's the case, we'd want to make sure that we did something to, to get rid of that. There could be something else going on, something a little bit more severe, something like a tumor or something of that nature. Um, or she could just have a really big head. And quite frankly, I think both of us thought maybe she just had a big head. Um, <laughs> and that was kind of what we expected. So they did get us in the very next morning at the hospital for an MRI here locally. And it was kind of odd because I remember walking into that room and seeing a whole bunch of families waiting for, you know, for an MRI and thinking, that's weird. We didn't even have an appointment until yesterday at four o'clock. And now all of a sudden we're like bypassing everybody. And so I think that was maybe the first trigger for me that whatever was going on, they were clearly worried about way more than than I think my husband and I had put together. They put us into a room, got her a, a, a CAT scan, actually, instead of an MRI, because that was the, um, the thing that they could get, get her in quickly for. And within about 35 minutes, they put us in a conference room and said, your daughter has a brain tumor. And even at that point in time, neither of us really truly understood what that means. If you don't have a lot of exposure to cancer, I don't think that really connects very well. So our immediate response was, okay, so what does that mean? That's not good, but what does that mean? And they all kind of looked at us in awe and shock and we're like, okay, well, you're, you're taking this rather well, but that means we need, to, we need to get you upstairs and the only way to do that is through the ER. So that was kind of our quick, fast introduction into the world of children's cancer. Um, it was kind of shocking and I don't think we really had a moment to absorb it um, and we didn't really panic until about two and a half weeks later when we finally got a, a reality check as to what that meant for her. What was the reality check that helped it to really sink in for you? Well, <laughs> to be honest, we stayed off the internet. We were told, um, you know, that's never the right place to get your information. Um, you know, this, you know, this is 11 years ago and so 12, almost 12. Um, and so we really felt like, you know, let's wait for the doctors to give us the information we need. There's no reason to get ourselves worked up over something that, you know, is not necessarily 
appropriate for her um, or relevant to her and what's going on with her. So we waited. And my husband went home one day. We'd had surgery. Um, we were, they had put a drain in her head to kind of keep her, the fluids in her head balanced. And he went home one day and came back and said, I got on the internet. And I was, and I said to him, well, that was dumb. I don't know why you did that. And he, he said to me, it's not good, Jen. And I said, well, what do you mean it's not good? And he said, well, I was looking at her prognosis and a child under the age of three diagnosed with a brain tumor, um, has a survival rate of less than 25%. And I said, well, that's clearly not true. This is why we're supposed to stay off the Internet. So we confronted the doctor when the doctor came in later for rounds that day. And she kind of just glared, like, kind of just stared at us and said, well, yes, that's true. And that, I think that was the kind of defining moment for us when our natural, my natural reaction, I'm a type A personality, was like, oh, Oh, no. Okay, now I'm going to need some information. So I went into high gear. (laughs) I rounded up all the girls and my mother and said, get going, figure this stuff out. We need to understand. And they all kind of looked at me and kind of said, we've been waiting for you to check into this. We've already been looking. And we started that process. And, And from there, it kind of kicked off with, we need to understand where we need to be. We need to understand where we need to go. If this isn't the right place, we need to, we need to go to the best. And that's how we found out about St. Jude. Okay. So um, I know there's several locations. Where did you go? We actually went to the hospital in Memphis. So here, obviously we, we live here in Kansas City and we went, we reached out to a family here locally that we found on the website that um, had been a patient at St. Jude and had had a small child, um, a baby under the age of one that had been diagnosed with a brain tumor as well. Different tumor, but, um, but one none, nonetheless. And I reached out to that mom, I think it was about 11 o'clock on a on a Wednesday night as I sat in the hospital room and said to her, I need to understand why you chose to go to St. Jude. Why, you know, what pushed you there? And she talked about everything about the hospital. And by the time the conversation got done, I had the name of the doctor that was in charge of the pediatric oncology uh, brain tumor unit at St. Jude. And I had his email address and I sent him an email. It was about one o'clock in the morning, and he responded at four o'clock, three, you know, three, four hours later and said, absolutely, please connect with my, my coordinator. Let's get Avery down here as quickly as possible. And that's, for us, that was it, that we knew, like, if that doctor was responding to me directly at four o'clock in the morning, knowing nothing about um, us and who we were, and I, like that immediately solidified for us that w- that's where we needed to be. We needed to be with the people at St. Jude, the people that could focus on my daughter and, and on her unique scenario and, and really help us get through it. So then what happened once you got there and walked through those doors? What was the treatment? So she got put on a uh, protocol that they were doing um, that was designed specifically for children under the age of three or three and under um, with brain tumors. Brain tumors respond really, really well to radiation, but the brain cannot um, absorb when it's in that growth stage. Um, it can't absorb that radiation. So they were looking at ways to um, try and get rid of the tumors without having such a heavy dose of radiation during 
what we, you know, which are incredibly important time of formulation of the brain activity and the growth and all that good stuff for small children. So we got put on a protocol that was focusing on that. Um, it started with heavy, heavy doses of chemotherapy to try and shrink the tumors after you had done any of your surgery. She had had her tumor resected at, at that point. And they did, you know, initial scans and whatnot to make sure that they didn't see anything lingering in um, the tumor bed, making sure that they had gotten everything. If they hadn't, they would have gone back in and, and done additional brain surgery. But luckily for us, she was good. Um, they didn't see anything there. So they did this heavy dosage of chemotherapy that started um, with three or four different types of a, of a cocktail of chemotherapy, and it ran the course um, of about 30-day cycles where her body would get kind of bombarded with this, these chemicals and these drugs, and then it would rebound, and then we'd start again. And we did that for four months, and then it was followed by what they call proton radiation, which is more focalized uh, radiation to the specific tumor bed areas and to her spine. And so we did that, and at the time, um, St. Jude didn't have um, on site a, a proton um facility, they were in the course of, of building and, and, and getting one. But in the meantime, they, they um, partnered with a proton therapy center down in Florida. So we actually went to Florida for that, uh, for the relationship and did our uh, radiation down there. So we did that for, she had 30 cycles, so about a month full of um, radiation focalized radiation, which is more like kind of like pinpoint radiation as opposed to a scatter. Um, think of it in terms of <laughs> This is terrible, but like rifle versus shotgun, like the spread is, is different. And so it was a little bit more focalized radiation to her brain and to her spine to try and um, capture any of those stray or errant cells that uh, that had not been captured by the chemotherapy. She's so, we did so that. little. How is she handling all of this stuff, all of these treatments and, and just being poked and hooked up to, I'm assuming, IVs and things? How was she handling mm-hmm. Honestly, she was too little to know any different. And so for her, it wasn't challenging or, or difficult. I think the hardest thing for her was waiting to eat when she was hungry because, you, you know, when you have to be sedated, you have to, you can't eat beforehand. And I think that was probably the most difficult thing um, for her. She really did well with it. And even to this day, she still does really well with it. We get obviously checkups on a yearly basis and we are con- consistently, um, you know, getting poked and prodded. She takes shots every day for growth hormone and the girl doesn't bat an eyelash. She gets a flu shot. Her brother and sister are crying and that kid doesn't make a peep. And she kind of just um, is amazing. I mean, she's much stronger than any adult I know. And she puts all of us to shame, quite frankly, when it comes to being sick or being poked and prodded and enduring all of the um, all of the things that she's had to endure in such a short time frame. So she did amazing. And um, I, my husband and I were kind of in, in awe at what she was capable of handling and still is. What was the hardest part for you having to watch her be hooked up and be in the hospital bed? You know, the hardest part for us, I think, was was really letting go and being and being able to trust somebody else to walk away with your child in their arms. I'll never forget the first time they sedated her. They um, pushed propofol into her um, into her IV line while I was holding her, and she immediately went slack. And that was probably the most helpless. I think I've ever felt in my entire life, and I will never, ever forget that. That was horrifying as a parent um, to see that. And that really that really will stay with me forever. The first fight didn't quite do it. Avery actually relapsed twice. Um, but you were told she was had, in remission and you thought it was all good for a while? No, no. You uh-uh. never told her, okay. <laughs> 
we were not. Um, so when she when she finished that first um, trial, uh, it was in the summer of that first year, and we went back every. So you go back every three months to go and check in and do your labs and do your MRI and look for anything that is sneakily suspicious of of being the cancer. And the first cycle of of that, we actually um, they actually found. Uh, cancer cells within her um, spinal fluid. So it came back um, with a vengeance, um, and we attacked it with some additional kind of uh, maintenance chemo, which is um, pretty aggressive. And then we looked at other options. Um, we did another trial and looked at uh, kind of a different way of approaching um, that because, again, she still was very little. She wasn't even years old at this point yet. Kind of beat it back for a while, um, got some positive results with that. And then the following fall, October is really not a great time for a family, um, got the same news again. Only this time it had come back a little bit more ferocious than instead of just finding cells, we found ourselves with additional tumors within her head. So we really had to go at it at that point. Um, we went back to our, our partners at St. Jude and said, we recognize that she's not quite three, but at this point, I don't know that we have any other options. You know, what are what are we thinking? Could we do full spinal and cranial radiation, knowing that that's really the type of treatment that this particular cancer responds best to? During this and, whole process, did you ever get frustrated and think about going somewhere else, or did you always feel in your heart that she was getting the best treatment? Oh, absolutely. 100% felt like that was the right decision for us. Um, St. Jude, I will tell you the one thing that I, there's some great hospitals out there and we've worked with a bunch, but St. Jude has always put us into the, the care team and always taken into consideration everything that we had to offer in regards to her treatment plan. By that, I mean, while they know their medicines, while they know um, the cancer, while they know the responses, nobody knows Avery better than us. And that was so incredibly important for them to understand. And we were the only ones that are able, were able to offer that type of information. And they really clearly put us front and center when it came to that. And that was that's the only hospital experience, I'll be honest, where that was truly evident in the in the battle. That they were the only ones that really included us instead of Instead of talking at us, they were talking with us about, okay, what do our next steps look like? And that I will forever be grateful. I never once doubted that the, that choosing to go there was the right option for us. So overall, how long was all of the treatment and everything until you got good news? Um, she was diagnosed a couple of days after Christmas that first year, and she did her last treatment. We did full spine and cranial radiation. Um, we did our last one just shortly after her um, third birthday. So we were doing it for a good two years um, for, you know, treatment. She finished that up in 2012, um, April, it was April 2012. And she has had what we, what we refer to as NED, no evidence of disease on all of her scans since then. Doesn't mean that there aren't things there that they're watching. It doesn't mean that um, there isn't things that could creep up or pop up. It just means that they have seen nothing that indi indicates live tumor or cancer activity that gives them pause and wants to put, put her in a place where we go back into a treatment mode. So we have been doing that since 2012. Um, you know, obviously we've missed this year given the situation and the state of the world, um, but we are slated to go back and visit in June um, to do our next set of MRIs and we expect to get the same news hopefully uh, in June. How long after she finished did it take you to where 
you felt comfortable and were positive and didn't like hold your breath every time you had to go in for a checkup? You know, because we had gotten the bad news twice, you know, in terms of, of saying, you know, okay, we found something. Um, I'll never forget the, t- the first time our our doctor came out in the middle of what should have been a routine MRI. And I knew, I just knew something was wrong and started, you know, I broke down then. Five years is the, is the time frame that, that generally any cancer survivor is given to say, okay, if we can stay stable, if we can give no evidence of disease for five years, at that point, we kind of hit this milestone where we feel like things are good and we can kind of feel confident in moving forward. Um, But I will say that it really took us until probably two years ago is probably when I finally was like, okay, um, we might be we might be okay. Um, the unfortunate part with any child that's been treated for cancer is that all the things that you use to treat cancer, of course, cause cancer. So we are on the lookout for secondary types of cancers from this point moving forward, which is she is now more susceptible to because of all the treatment that she has gone through, because of the radiation, because of the chemo, because of the damage that we've done to her body um, to get rid of the cancer. Those things are all still there. The deficits are, you know, are large. She has a full life. She she enjoys um, everything about what she does. Um, she doesn't know any different, but she did walk away with, with a lot of deficits because of the treatment that she went through. So finding different ways to do this is so incredibly important. And that's why the mission at St. Jude is so valid to, to those that are in that space and for the future. You know. So then what would you say to someone who's listening this morning about why they should support St. Jude? I would say that St. Jude is not about today and now. It does help us learn about what does or doesn't work in the fight against children's cancer, but it gives an opportunity and hope to families in the future. You have no idea who could turn around and be that next parent with a kid with cancer. I honestly, I have had to welcome multiple friends into this world, um, people that I knew beforehand that had never thought that they would find themselves in that space. And here I was, the welcoming committee to that world. And that is an awful feeling. And I don't ever want to see another parent have to go through that again. That was absolutely horrifying. St. Jude gives us that opportunity to fight back against that, to look for ways around it, to make it better for the future kids, for the for the grandkids, for the, the children's children that are coming down the, the path. And I I wholeheartedly support the mission that they have been going after for all these years so that someday, someday we won't have to fight for this. This will be uh, something that we're, we've eradicated and that we are, are, are no longer fighting against. And I'm 100% in agreement that uh, Danny Thomas's initial mission has, has and will always continue to be so important for the future, for our generations in the future and all of our children. Thanks for listening to TMI with Teresa. Production and voice imaging by DJ Sod and Connor Quinn. Get episode updates and read Teresa's blog at TMIWithTeresa.com. Oh.